Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you today. How many people in this room are oldest children? Maybe make noise, because I can't really see your hands. Okay, all right, that's a lot of oldest children. I'm also an oldest child, and I loved being the oldest, mostly because I could boss my younger siblings around. I have a younger brother and two younger sisters, and I pretty much just got to decide what we were playing and how we were playing it and what role everyone else was going to be, and they just did it. It was great. I wish my kids listened as well as my siblings did when I was younger. One of my favorite things to do... When, my, when I was younger with my little sisters was makeovers. I loved making my sisters sit on the toilet seat in the bathroom for hours sometimes while I did their makeup and curled their hair and we'd go into their rooms and I'd pick out their outfits and then I would make them do like a photo shoot. And my parents, they wouldn't know that I used all the film because, you know, it wasn't digital cameras. They would go and take the film to get developed and I would have blown through like several rolls doing my modeling shots of my sisters. It was so much fun. So one year for my birthday, when I was maybe like 13 or so, my parents let me go to Glamour Shots. Who remembers Glamour Shots? Anybody? Yes. Glamour Shots was this photography studio where they would have a team that would help you do your hair and your makeup, and then they had every look you could imagine. Accessories, there's feather boas and hats and jewelry and leather jackets. You could pick a couple different looks, and then they would take your pictures. So you would get to go home with these like fantastically ridiculous pictures. I tried really hard to find my glamour shots to share with you. I even asked my mom to look for them. We could not find them, but don't worry. I reached out to some of the ladies of Novation, and boy, did they deliver. Take a look at some of these pictures. Here's Danielle Woodyard. Look at this. Look at the hair blowing. It's so good. It's so good. Next up, this is 12-year-old Megan Montoya. Megan Montoya. Look at this next one with the hat. I mean, come on. This is Melissa Simon and her mom in all of their sparkly 80s glory. This is probably early 90s, actually. Tanya Garwood, ladies and gentlemen. Circa 1995. Look at the shoulder pads. Patty Troutwine. How good is that? Look at it. It just gets better. And last but not least... Jill Sump, ladies and gentlemen, Jill Sump. My husband saw this picture and he goes, she looks like a character in a low budget sci-fi film. <laughs> Thank you to all of you who are willing to display the, the goodness of glamour shots. I mean, who doesn't love a makeover? How much fun is that, right? Today, we are gonna be talking about the ultimate makeover, not a physical makeover on the outside, but the kind of makeover, the kind of transformation that happens because of the gospel. We are going to be looking at a text out of 2 Corinthians. Last week, Scott did a great job of helping us understand what was happening in the city of Corinth. We talked about 1 Corinthians last week, and just the kind of moral corruption that was present within the city, and then all of the divisions and the disorders that were going on within the church, within this Jesus community that Paul had established on one of his missionary journeys. 
That is largely what the book of 1 Corinthians was about. It was addressing some of the disorders and the divisions within the church and some specific questions that the church had asked Paul about. Now, 2 Corinthians is not actually the second letter that Paul wrote. Paul went to visit the church at Corinth after 1 Corinthians was written because a group of false teachers had come in behind Paul And they came in with a lot of sophistication and education and eloquence. And they were trained in logic and debate. And the church at Corinth just started to eat that up. These false teachers were twisting the gospel. And they were tearing down Paul and Paul's ministry. To the point that the church at Corinth began to question his apostolic authority. They began to question his credentials and whether or not he had the authority to teach them what he did. The gospel was getting skewed and twisted. And so Paul wrote a very sharp letter that we don't have a record of, but it's referred to in the book of 2 Corinthians, trying to deal with this relational break that had taken place. And then he also made a visit to the church at Corinth to try to correct this. And he refers to this as the painful Visit. So there was some real relational trauma that had happened between the church and Paul. And the letter of 2 Corinthians is actually a letter of Paul defending his ministry and reconciling with the church. The church kind of had a change of heart. The majority of the people within the Corinthian church realized the error in their ways and they wanted to make amends with Paul. And so 2 Corinthians is Paul's attempt to let them know that he still loved them, cared for them, wanted what was best for them, and to continue to correct some of the false teaching that had taken place. I wanted you to have that broad overview before we zero in on our text this morning. But before we go further, will you just take a minute and pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures and for the way that you speak to us through the scriptures, that we can understand more and more of who you are, of your heart for us, and of who we are because of you. God, this morning, whatever we walked in here with, whatever weights we're carrying, whatever distractions are vying for our attention, I ask that you would help our minds to just focus on what you have for us today, that we would have tender and open hearts, that we would be willing to hear what you want us to hear today. Correct us, encourage us, convict us, challenge us, and be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we are going to be in 2 Corinthians. I want to read to you verses, chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. We're going to break this down, but I think it will be helpful for you to hear the whole thing all in one piece, and then we'll go through it bit by bit. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, before we go any further, I just want to share with you that as I've been studying over these past couple of weeks for today's message, and earlier in this week when I started putting the outline together and, you know, just trying to find the thread of, of where this was going to go today, I was really struggling. I was just struggling to connect. I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And so on Wednesday afternoon, I started talking to my husband about it. We were just kind of processing through this, and I was sharing with him just feeling like I'm, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around this. And as him and I were talking, I realized that the reason that I was struggling is because I am reading these beautiful truths that Paul's declaring, that Jesus died for all, and that we are new creations in Christ, and that we're ambassadors for Christ, and God's making his appeal through us. And that's beautiful, and I believe it with all my heart but I don't feel very new right now. We're just in a season for a variety of reasons where things are a little bit hard. Nothing major is going wrong. We're not dealing with any kind of crisis or tragedy, but just in a variety of different ways and for a variety of different reasons, things are a little bit hard. And so I realized that I'm, I'm reading these words and I believe them, but my reality doesn't feel new. I don't feel new. And so once I realized that, I just started praying about it, just asking Jesus to help me process and understand how to approach the scriptures when what I'm reading and what I'm living don't quite feel like they're matching up. So I went to bed Wednesday night. I woke up really early Thursday morning, like 4, 4.30 in the morning. I was awake, and I was just aware of God's presence. And so I started praying through this, all of this, the same stuff. God, help me understand what to do when my reality and your word feel like they're not in line. And God brought to my mind 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, which is just a few verses before what I just read to you. And in these verses, Paul is reminding the church at Corinth of their ultimate redemption, of their ultimate makeover, that one day they would have new bodies and that everything would be made new. All things would be made new. And he says to them in verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. Other translations say we live by faith and not by sight. And I was like, okay, yes, my feelings and my circumstances are not going to determine the truth that I cling to. I'm going to allow God's word and God's character to, to determine what is true and not my feelings and not my circumstances. And as I continued to pray, I was reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, those very well-known words, come to me, all you who are weary, I will give you rest for your souls. And I love the translation from the message version. I want to read it to you because it's just such beautiful language. These are the words of Jesus. Come to me. Get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy 
or ill-fitting on you, keep company with me, and you will learn to live freely and lightly. We walk by faith and not by sight, and we have a good and kind and gentle Savior who will teach us to live freely and lightly and who will not burden us with ill-fitting or heavy garments. That's so encouraging. So if you are like me, and you're in here this morning thinking like, oh, a message about being made new. I just, I don't feel new. I, I feel like I'm struggling. I feel unnew. I feel the opposite of new. If that's you today, I just hope that the encouragement that the Lord gave to me will also encourage you and that we can move into the rest of our text with you being able to say, Lord, I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. My feelings will not dictate my reality, but your truth will. So with that being said, let's dive in. We are going to look at three specific areas that Paul points out in this section of text that in which we are made new, where the life, death, and resurrection of, the, of Jesus changes everything. The first is that we have a new reality because of the gospel. We are now living in a new reality. The gospel challenges our values, it changes our center, and it corrects our view of other people. You see, the values of the world are the opposite of the values of the kingdom of God. And this was true in the church in Corinth, and it's true for us today. The world values power and status and wealth and comfort. But in the kingdom of God, we actually revel in our weakness because it's in our weakness that God's power is made perfect. We don't worry about our reputation anymore because we're not living for ourselves. Instead, we're about the glory of God. We're not seeking after our own status or recognition. We're not worried about accumulating worldly wealth because we know that we have treasure in heaven that cannot ever compare to the worldly wealth. And we no longer strive to make sure we are comfortable, that our needs are cared for first, because we understand that Jesus laid down everything for us, and that as we follow him and as we lay down ourselves, he continually fills us back up. Jesus turns the values of the world upside down and inside out. We see it in his life. We see it in his teaching. And as we are transformed by the gospel, our values will begin to reflect kingdom values rather than worldly values. The gospel also changes our center. I want to read to you again those first couple of verses that we just looked at. This is verse 14 and 15. I'm going to stop at 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Those who live should no longer live for themselves. I'm the mother of four kids, and I probably don't need to tell you this, but you don't have to teach toddlers to be selfish, right? It's not required. From the time all four of my kids, when they had enough language and enough like autonomy to be able to move around and do what they wanted to do, some of the words we heard most frequently were mine, me, no, right? It's innate. You don't have to teach a toddler to be selfish. And honestly, 
we are no different. We just layer over it with better manners so it's not as obvious. But outside of the gospel, we are the center of our own universe. We pursue our desires, our needs. We want to get what's owed to us. But the gospel changes our center. When you are transformed by the life death, and resurrection of Jesus, no longer are you living for yourselves because you're living for him. And it's so much better and so much more fulfilling. How many people know that chasing after your own desires and living for yourself with you at the center, it never works out. You always end up disappointed, disillusioned, broken, in relational distress with other people. But as we are transformed by the gospel, as our our center shifts from being self-focused to Jesus-focused, beautiful things come out of that. And then lastly, the the gospel changes our view of other people. I'm going to read just the very last verse, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Other translations say that we don't judge people by human perspectives anymore. Now, in the first letter to the Corinthians, we can see the kind of divisions that were taking place. The church at Corinth, they were creating all kinds of different categories for people. They were drawing category lines on like ethnic lines, who's Jewish and who's Gentile, on socioeconomic lines, who's rich and who's poor, who's educated and who's not, who follows Paul, who follows Apollos, who follows Peter. They had divisions all over the place, and I don't think we're a whole lot different. The categories that we come up with might not be the same, but we still do it, and to some degree, it's because it helps us make sense of the world. We create categories so we can figure out where do I fit, where do I belong. But here's the problem. Almost always, Whatever categories we create, whether it's political categories, theological categories, or whatever other kind of categories you can think of, we place ourselves on the side of the right, the righteous, the clean. We're in, and everybody who doesn't belong to our group, they're out. And that's a problem because the scriptures we just read said that Jesus died for everyone, right? That he's reconciling the whole world to himself. And so when I get caught up in creating categories and deciding who's in and who's out, everybody I put on the outside, that's somebody Jesus died for. He's reconciling the world to himself. And lest you think, oh, well, I don't do that. Think about that person in your life who maybe just rubs you the wrong way. Maybe they're always talking about some hot button topic that just drives you crazy. You don't like to be around them. You go out of your way to avoid them. We've all got those people in our life. The gospel does not leave room for you to keep them on the outside. There's no space for that anymore because the gospel changes everything. We're living in a new reality where because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that person that you can't stand, that you go out of your way to avoid, Jesus died for them. And you are now an ambassador for Christ You are called to love them, right? We're going to get into that more in just a minute. The second area that Paul points to where the gospel remakes us, where we are new because of the gospel, is that we have a new identity. In verse 17 that we read, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
the old has gone and the new is here. Scott said this a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was so good. He said, anytime you see the word therefore, ask what is it therefore? Because that's a connecting word. When you read the word therefore, Paul's referring to everything he just said. That because the love of Jesus compels us, because we believe that Jesus died for all, because of all of that, we are a new creation. We have a new identity. Our allegiance to Jesus is now what defines us. Not our past failures, not our successes, not any category that we might create, but it's our allegiance to Jesus that defines us. And this doesn't mean that we're all just going to become cookie cutter versions that look the same and act the same and think the same and talk the same. But rather what this looks like is that when we submit our lives to Jesus, when we find our identity in him, we're actually free to be who we really are. The unique ways that God has gifted you, the personality he gave you, the way that you view the world, your passions and your interests in the hands of Jesus as you find your identity, not in any of those things, but in him, you become free to be the best reflection of Jesus that you can be in the world. And I want that. But the thing about this new identity is that we can't just wrestle ourselves into it or manufacture it. Our new identity is actually a work of the Spirit. It's not something we can accomplish on our own. It's the work of the Spirit. There's some verses I want to look at out of the book of Ezekiel. But before we jump into them, there's a few things you need to know about Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet during the Babylonian exile. So the Jewish people, really from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they didn't trust his word or his character, they defined good and evil for themselves, and in doing so broke their relationship with God and with one another, that story just played out all through our our Old Testament Bible, we see it in the world around us, we see it in our own lives. And for the Israelites, the continual rejection of being obedient to God and loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength resulted in idolatry and injustice and brokenness that eventually led to the exile. So the Babylonian army came in, they took most of the Jewish people to live in Babylon in a foreign land. They destroyed the temple, and this was just crushing for God's people, right? So they're in exile when Ezekiel has this prophetic vision of a future hope. Let me read these words to you. This is chapter 36, verse 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you hear of all of that? God speaking, God saying, I will do this. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. This is a work of God in our hearts. And it found its fulfillment in Jesus because of his life, death, and resurrection, because the access that each one of us has to God through the Son in the Spirit, we can now walk in this new identity because God does the work of giving us a new heart. But it's not only a work of the Spirit. We participate with the Spirit 
by putting on the new self. It's not just a passive action that just takes place while we're sleeping or watching a movie or something. We participate with the Spirit in walking out this new identity that's ours because of Jesus. Um, Paul, he uses this language frequently. There's multiple other letters where we see Paul talking like this, talking about the new self or the new creation. And I want to read a different passage to you where Paul is talking about this because I think in this passage, we really see the call to action on our part. I'm going to read to you out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 24. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth, precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it, and then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. You can hear those calls to action. Get rid of the old life and put on the new self. This is so important because the way that we move through the world, what we do flows out of who we believe that we are. Understanding our identity and looking at ourselves in the same way that God sees us is vitally important. As I was studying for this, I came across the story of a woman named Crystal Jones. I found this in a Psychology of Education online magazine article. This is where studying for for messages takes you. I was reading Psychology of Education magazines. But this story is so fascinating. Crystal Jones joined a program called Teach for America. And this program matched teachers in training with um, under-resourced schools in impoverished communities. And so Crystal Jones got matched up with a first grade classroom somewhere in Atlanta. And she went into this classroom. This elementary school did not have a kindergarten as part of it. So these kids in this classroom, these first grade kids, this was their first introduction to formal education. She said that a few of the kids could recognize some kindergarten sight words, but many of the kids did not even know any of their alphabet or their numbers. They didn't know how to hold a pencil. And she's a brand new teacher. She's just getting like on the job training here. And so you can imagine Crystal being like, well, what am I going to do with these kids? Like, I want to give them a good start, a good foundation for their entire educational experience. And she was out on the playground. There was first through third grade on the playground. And she was watching the little first graders. And what she noticed was that whatever the third graders were doing, that's what the first graders wanted to be doing. Whatever part of the playground they were on, the, the first graders would flock to that same area. And I know this to be true. I've got four kids. When they were younger, if we were at like a park or somewhere where there was a lot of kids of different ages, my younger kids would just very naturally gravitate toward the kids that were just a little bit older than them. And so Crystal Jones thought, that's my in. I'm going to get these kids on board by convincing them that by the end of the year, they would be third graders. So she tells the first grade class this. She's like, all right, guys, stick with me. 
and you are going to be a third grader by the end of the year. And you can imagine these little six, seven-year-old kids being like, well, awesome. Like, I want to be a third grader, right? And then what Crystal did was she created a community where that identity was just soaked into those kids. Every morning, they would say this little mantra. The teacher would say, what is a scholar class? And the class would say, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is good at it. And they said that over and over and over. And then they stopped referring to each other by their first names. And instead, they called each other Scholar Diebel, Scholar Sump, Scholar Applegate. So these little kids are every day saying, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is good at it. And then they're calling each other scholars. And then anytime somebody came to visit this first grade classroom, the teacher would introduce her class and she would say, oh, well, hello, Mr. Principal. This is my class of scholars, and we are becoming third graders. Guess what happened to those kids? By the end of their first grade year, 90% of them were at or above a third grade level. 90%. And every single student was above a first grade level, because that is the power of identity. When you understand who you are and you live out of that, that's who you become. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is reminding the Corinthians, you are not that old way of life. You are not your divisions and your mistakes and all of this junk that's been attached to your life. No, no, no. You are a new creation. And that's what we are reminded of as well. We are a new creation. We have a new identity in Jesus. And then lastly... We have a new purpose. We have a new purpose. I'm going to read the last couple of verses from our text one more time. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We have a new purpose. I think that it's easy sometimes for us to have this purpose at the forefront of our minds in certain situations. Like when you're here on a Sunday morning, or maybe you're at men's core breakfast, or a women's Bible study, or a short-term mission trip, or you're actively witnessing to somebody, in those moments, this purpose might be crystal clear to us. But I think in the everyday, ordinary coming and going that makes up our life, sometimes we lose focus of this. And I just wonder, what would happen if we began to see every facet of our lives as an opportunity to participate in the ministry of reconciliation? What would happen in your marriage, in your parenting, in your errand running, in your job, in your schools, in your friendships, your neighborhood, your hobbies? What if we saw every single area of our life as an opportunity for us to share the good news that God is reconciling the world to himself? What changes might happen? What if we began to develop a practice of every day beginning by saying, Jesus, my life is yours. You have control. 
You get to lead the way. And what if we responded to every prompting of the Spirit with a faith-filled yes? What kind of beautiful, creative, redemptive work would God do just from the people sitting here in this very room? What kind of businesses might be started? What kind of ministries might flourish? Who might find freedom from addiction? Who might find themselves no longer isolated and lonely and despairing, but thriving in community with other people? What babies might be adopted? What hope might be born? If just the people in this room committed ourselves to starting each day saying, Lord, my life, it's yours. Do what you want to do through me and in me. In Ephesians, Paul talks about how we are Christ's handiwork and that we were created for good works, that we would walk in them, that God prepared things in advance. And I don't want to miss that. I want to embrace every one of the moments that God has for me. I want to have eyes to see the people around me the way that God sees them so that I don't get so caught up in my own mess and my own busyness that I miss an opportunity to participate in this ministry of reconciliation. So I want to invite all of you to to just ask God, what might that look like? Would God shake things up a little in your life if he had full control? I think he might, and I think it would be a beautiful adventure to be on. I want to invite Emma and Gunnar to come up here and join me on stage. Emma and Gunnar have been part of our church family for a couple of years now, and they have such a heart and such a passion for global missions. And God has been prompting them, and they are getting ready to faithfully follow where he's leading. And I just want to give them an opportunity to share with us what's going on so church family, we're able to be praying for them and supporting them. So Emma, Gunnar, what is going on? Hi, you guys, my, I do the mission. You know who I am. This is my gunner. This is my gunner. This is my husband, Gunner. You don't see him often. He likes to keep in the shadows. Um, yes, we were in missions about three-ish years ago. We got out in December of 2019, came home. It's been a wild ride. This sermon was so good. I feel like it's perfectly explained our last three years. I feel like um, when we came home, we needed a new beginning, which I think it's so funny that Brian mentioned that about Novation this morning, because Novation was our new beginning, moving home. And yeah, the Lord has been moving in us the last three years, but I'd say specifically like this year, he's been like hammering on our hearts a lot and doing great things. Um, a few weeks ago, maybe a month-ish now, um, a YWAM base in Norway I know you guys have heard me talk about YWAM probably a million times. That's who we were with before. Um, This base in Norway has reached out to us a few years ago and reached out to us again around Easter. And they asked us to come work with them again. And man, the Lord was clear. He left really no opportunity to say no. And it was just one of those things where if we would have said no, you just would have known that you were not walking with God in his calling for you. So with that being said, around sometime in August, we're going to go back and be missionaries in Norway at a base very north. It's in the Arctic Circle. So pray for us. Oh, dear. Um, No, but yeah, the Lord has been working so incredibly on us. Um, We have a little girl. Hopefully she's not screaming in Sunday school. Um, And yeah, 
it's been crazy to say yes. I mean, it's been full of tears and heartache and, you know, like it's amazing when God does something in your life and it's so incredible and it brings, you know, transformation and incredible things. But sometimes it's also really hard to say yes. And I feel like Gunnar and I have had a hard time saying yes because, you get comfortable, and our grandparents or our little girl's grandparents are here, and we like our life here, and it's finally starting to get better. We've had a rough three years. It's starting to finally like level out and get smooth, and now God's like, well, actually, upend everything, move across the world, and start over. Um, but we are really excited, and this time, something different for missions with us is you guys, and sorry. But when we left missions, it was hard. It was hard. It created a lot of heartache. And coming here has been so incredible. And I feel like Novation has been such a family for us. And we're excited that now we get to go into missions with people actually backing us and rooting for us and praying for us and just being there for us. Sorry, this is embarrassing. Um, Anyways, yeah. So we are excited to share that with you guys. And... Yeah, hopefully have your support and backing in prayer, so importantly. But anyways. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Don't leave yet. Brian, do you want to come join us too? We are so excited for you guys. We are thankful that you're willing to follow the Lord's leading in this area. And Scott is going to pray for you. It's been fun to get to know you guys and hear a little of your story and the backstory on the calling to missions. And um, we as your church family just affirm and confirm God's call. And uh, we're going to be here for you. We're going to pray. We'll stay connected. And uh, maybe we'll come see you one day on our own trip, right? (laughs) Sounds cold, though. Yeah. Will you just extend a hand towards these awesome folks? Father, thank you for Emma. And Gunner, thank you for thank you for their obedience to what they sense you have called them to. And um, Lord, they walk by faith and not by sight, just as we were talking about. And so help them in that. Lord, I pray for grace and strength in their marriage relationship. God, that they would continue to put each other first as they put you, Lord Jesus, first in their life. And that they would know how to love and serve and care for one another. And Lord, being a a parent to a little one in this kind of journey, they're going to need a lot of grace. And so I pray that for them. I pray protection over them. I pray for peace to lead and guide them. And Lord, I, uh, I just pray for the preparation season that they're in to go. Um, it's coming quick, and it'll go by quick, so I pray for provision financially, uh, provision relationally, and uh, Lord, just your peace and joy to lead them as they accept this this call to this next season. To will lead them to another season into something else, so we trust you for that. We bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. going to get ready to go into communion here in just a moment. Like right now. Um, Thanks, Kristen. That was a great word. We appreciate it. Appreciate your gifts. 
We're going to go into to communion this morning, and we have uh, the elements up front here. And um, as we prepare our hearts for taking the Lord's Supper together, it's a sacred thing. I know we're non-denominational, and it's, it's a little more casual, but it's still one of the most sacred things we can do, along with baptism and, and so forth, because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do it as often as you can to take the bread that represents his broken body, to take the juice that represents his blood that ushered in this new identity, this new covenant, this new reality. He did that for us. And we are reminded every time we take communion. And so what Jesus asks of each of us is to agree with him. We don't make him Lord. We don't make him Savior. He's already the Lord of all. He's already the Savior of all, as we just read about. We agree with him. That's what faith really is. Jesus, I agree with you. And so by taking the elements, you're agreeing with him about his life, death, and resurrection. And you are making a, a change in your life to follow him in every area of your life. That's what he calls for faith and then to trust him in obedience and live a life that he wants to live, that he emulated for each one of us. So we're going to move, and um, you can come and grab, grab the bread and the juice. Go back to your seat, and we'll take it all together as a family as the worship team leads us in a song. There are some communion stuff for those that are in the back of the sanctuary as well. You can go there.
This would be helpful. I'm used to having the my headset on. <laughs> um, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. Continues, he says, in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Jesus, there aren't words that we can find to truly express our gratitude to you. But we'll do our best and just say thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for rescuing us. When there's no way we could help ourselves, you made a way for humanity to know the Father, to walk in the Spirit, and to have a 
new identity, a new life, a new reality. We love you. We're going to walk out of here today filled with faith, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.